Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's summertime and we all want to go outside, have some fun in the sun, enjoy all those great summer activities, go swimming, go biking, lots of different things we can do to enjoy ourselves and exercise. But what can you do to avoid getting hurt? Are you really supposed to put hydrogen peroxide on every wound that you get when you're at the beach? What do you do about jellyfish stings? Well, to answer that and more, we are going to be talking today to Kaiser Permanente's Chief of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Greg Strongoski, and also Dr. Lauren Rodriguez. She is an emergency room doctor there as well. We're going to talk about some of the most common ways that people get unfortunately injured in the emergency room to get re- to hopefully get relief and or recover. And we're going to talk about some tips on what to do when you get hurt, cut, injured, have dressings, all that kind of stuff. What do you go to the ER for? We'll find out that and more. First, I want to welcome my guests, Dr. Greg, Dr. Lauren. Welcome to The Body Show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm happy that you're here. I don't want to go to your home. I really want to avoid the emergency room. I don't want to get injured. Granted, I'm not so athletic. But that being said, it's summertime. I want to go out. I want to enjoy myself. I want to go to the ocean. I want to go, you know, swimming and biking and walking and all those sorts of things. Dr. Greg, am I allowed to go swimming if I have cuts on my legs? I mean, you know, if I have a couple of cat scratches from the cats just getting a little mad at me, can I still go swimming? What what should I do? Questions asked a lot when they come into the ED and after actually we take care of lacerations. The quick answer is it's not the best idea to put any type of wound in the ocean. The ocean water is not sterile saline. It's dirty saline. The fish and other creatures do their thing in the ocean. So consequently, no. The answer, quick and dirty, is not. What I recommend, soap and water the wound, bandage it up, and actually I suggest some of my patients to put duct tape over that. All the surfers that get abrasions on the coral, keep them covered, duct tape it, you're good to go. Duct tape. Absolutely. I love it. There's so many different uses for duct tape. I think there's actually a calendar, a thousand and one uses for duct tape. And if not, there should be. So if you have open wounds, you should keep them covered if you go swimming. If you need to, literally put some duct tape on it. And then how is that protecting the wound? So you take the duct tape off. And again, you want to wash it. Why do I keep thinking peroxide's wonderful, alcohol's even better, and ow, that really hurts? Peroxide might be good for the first time, first time the wound gets injured. You have a dirty wound, you're in the LOI paddling, you cut yourself. Yes, I might peroc- I might put peroxide on that wound for the first time. Okay, I'll if w- I'm in the LOI, I'm peroxiding my whole body. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm taking a peroxide shower. It'll look nice because it fizzes up. Okay, however, F, with that said, you might put it on because what peroxide does, it does kill bacteria. It does kill virus. It kills everything. But the bad news is, too, is it kills all your healing cells. So if you kill everything, then your wound is basically in a stalemate. So initially, you could peroxide the wound. However, after that initial treatment, then it's just soap and water. So when you have those healing cells that are actually inhibited by the peroxide as well, does the same thing happen when you use other treatments like alcohol or even topical neosporin and stuff? 25 years ago, I was told alcohol really doesn't do much. You know, all the times you see the nurses rub the alcohol on you before they give you the shot. Theoretically, alcohol takes about 30 minutes to kill. 
as compared to, let's say, betadine, which takes two to three minutes, as compared to iodine, which takes about 30 seconds. So rubbing alcohol, it looks good. They do it in the movies. You know, they put the vodka bottle and wash you down. No, that really doesn't do much. So then why do I use an alcohol sanitizer for my hands? That's a good question. And that question has no answer. <laughs> so I should really be doing iodine or betadine or something. Well, again, that kills indiscriminately also. So if you use betadine, iodine, that kills exactly the bacteria your all and okay. all your good things too, the fibroblasts that want to come in and heal. So after you initially clean the wound, all you really need to do is twice a day, soap and water, clean it off, keep it covered, don't let germs get in it. Now, again, if you cannot keep it covered, don't go in the ocean. But if a lot of people still want to go because they're active and they're motivated, that's fine. You put a piece of gauze and then duct tape around it. We, I suggest duct tape because it's, it's so sticky, 1,002 uses. So, yes, I would use duct tape, keep the wound covered. No germs could get in there. You're good to go. And then you get out of the beach, you go home, you take it off, clean it again, soap and water. And, you know, I often wonder, I see people come in and they have wounds, and it looks like every time they put on a dressing, then they take it off. Maybe they're changing their dressing, and we'll talk about how often people should do that. But it seems like the only way that wound is going to heal is if it's exposed to the air and dried out a little. There's no specific literature. You'll If you query 10 doctors, five will say keep it open, five will say keep it covered. I would suggest if you're going to bed at night and the wound's not draining to mess the sheets, leave it open. I always would just suggest keep the wounds covered so there's no germs or dirt that can get in the wound. So what I usually tell people if they see me is, you know, listen, if you've got pets at home that are going to lick it, you keep it covered. Absolutely. And if you can elevate it and or leave it open to the air for an hour or two, that would be great. In between dressing changes, let the skin breathe. But then nighttime, you don't want it to be stuck on the sheet. You pull your sheet off and there goes your skin. So nighttime, if it's draining at all, you want to keep it covered somewhat. Loose dressing doesn't have to be really tight. Um, but also, should people just make sure they change their dressings at least twice a day? Twice a day. Perfect, perfect amount of time. I often see people, they get a dressing on Friday night. They're told, follow up to see me Monday, and they haven't touched it Saturday or Sunday. And that is a really crusty dressing. And it's hard to get off. It usually is. What we recommend when you come into the emergency department, if we have to suture up a wound, again, this is a little bit different than just having a wound injury. But let's say we clean up a wound, suture it up. We suggest the dressing should stand for four to eight hours. During that time, a water seal sort of forms uh, from the laceration and the incisions that we made or we fixed. So I would leave the dressing on for four to eight hours. Then you take it off because your body weeps. It's like sweat. You know, It's called serous drainage. But nevertheless, that should be cleaned up, soap and water, bandage it back up. You're good to go. Your body wants to heal. So that's stitches. If you get stitches, you leave that dressing on for 48 hours. Yes. And if you don't have stitches, you have the little steri strips or you have just a bandage, change it twice a day. Exactly. It's going to drain. And with stitches, don't go swimming in the ocean. Correct. Because that's a foreign body. That's what we recommend. But let's say if my daughter decided, you know, Dad, I need to go in the water, what I would do. Duct tape. Absolutely. All right. 103 uses. Duct tape that wound. Okay, so now you know I got to ask this because I don't know why I just feel the need. Grossest wound you've ever seen. What are some of the gross things that you see and you're like, how could this have happened? A lot of those injuries are on the feet. I mean, if you really think about the the foot, the feet, or the dirtiest area, it's closest to the ground. 
And we've seen multiple patients come in, lacerations to the feet, that just haven't been cared for appropriately. And again, it's hard. I understand it's not easy for everybody to soap and water and bandage their foot. Bandages aren't Some people can't reach their feet. Correct. So it is difficult. What about, okay, this is something I see that I'm grossed out about. Tell me I should not be so grossed out about it or maybe agree with me. People walking around, no shoes. Now, I'm not talking at the beach, no shoes, the sand. That's great. People walking around at the gas station, bare feet. I'm just thinking that's a bad plan in general. Absolutely. All right. So you're with me. Put some shoes on people. Put on your shoes because you don't know what you're stepping on on the ground. Absolutely. And there could be glass. There could be a whole bunch of stuff. Diabetics, oh, they must check their feet every night. They may not sense their feet. Exactly. I mean, diabetic neuropathies, you don't sense when you actually step on something. And again, that's dangerous too. So at least wear slippers. Anybody who's diabetic should be wearing slippers for sure. Okay. Now let's talk, Dr. Lauren, water safety. What should we do? We want to go in the water. I want to go swimming. I want to go do something. Tell me about what tips I need to know to stay good in the water. All right. So summer is a great opportunity to adopt and reinforce some healthy lifestyle habits. And swimming is one of those. We know that swimming does a lot of great things. It increases your physical and mental health. It helps in terms of lowering risk for chronic diseases like I'm heart disease. I'm weightless in the water. It's gravity-free world. It's the only place in the world I am. I love it. So these are good things. I Can Can I really get a good cardiovascular workout in the ocean? Oh, absolutely. All in right. fact, one of the reasons why we recommend that people see their PCPs is that when you're in the water, you are actually burning more calories. So you are having a greater metabolic workout. And so that's why we say, you know, if you're at increased risk for things like heart disease over the age of, say, 35, then we would recommend you see your primary care provider. Make sure you get a good physical clearance to engage in some of these more heart healthy but also strenuous activities. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We are talking about ways to avoid my friends in the emergency room. Dr. Lauren Rodriguez, she's an emergency room doctor at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Greg Strongoski, he is the chief of emergency medicine there. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about how I can get a great workout in the ocean. Really, I don't even sweat. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my emergency room physician friends, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Greg, both from Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about fun in the sun. How come we all want to go out in the sun over the summer and a bunch of us might wind up seeing our friends in the emergency room? You're really nice people. I don't want to be a patient. I'm just saying. I'd like to stay healthy. So, Dr. Lauren, you were telling me that I get a better workout in the ocean because I, I mean... I'll take that. I'll say yes to that. And I, how do I know that I'm getting a workout? I mean, it's not like I'm sweating. I'm in water. How do I know? Right. So one of the ways that you know that you're getting a good workout is by essentially the sensation of your heartbeat. You know you're getting a good workout when you feel that uh, that your heart's really working harder. You could feel the exertion of your muscles. But one of the risky things about working out in the water is that things that warn us that we may be getting dehydrated, ways that we know that we are... Um, testing our metabolic demand is by sweating. And so when you're exercising on land, you can notice 
the perspirations or the sweating. And that's actually a sensation that you lose when you're in the water. And so when we're talking about how to exercise safely in the water, and like we mentioned before, swimming is a great way of uh, exercising. That's one of the things that we have to be mindful of, that we may not necessarily be aware that we are exerting ourselves in a way that maybe is outside of um, what's safe for us. We know that that's one of the risk factors for drowning. So when we talk about swimming, one of the things um, that we talk about next is drowning. And, and we know that uh, drowning is one of the leading unintentional deaths. It's in our children ages one through 14. It's right behind motor vehicle collisions or motor vehicle accidents. And so we want to talk about the ways to do it safely. So if I'm out in the water and I'm doing my workout and I've hopefully hydrated and I'm making the pantomime of me swimming, even though I'm on land. I don't know why I'm doing it. It's radio. So if I'm out there and I'm swimming and I'm starting to panic because maybe I'm further from shore than I think I should be, or maybe I'm starting to feel out of breath, what should I do to avoid drowning? I mean, that to me is something we hear a lot of tourists who come here well-intentioned. They go snorkeling at Hanama Bay. They go, you know, doing other things all around the island. And we wind up hearing about drownings, even right in Waikiki. What is it, what are the warning signs that someone should pay attention to if they are in the water that could help protect them? All right. So the first thing that you should do when you are concerned about being outside of your comfort zone in a situation that's unsafe is to not panic. Because when we think of the pathophysiology of drowning, the first thing that happens is that panic response or hyperventilation. And what that does is it puts you at risk of aspirating. Um, it puts you at risk of drowning. And so what you want to do, the first step is to keep calm and to have that. Um, I was speaking to one of our my firefighter friends in the emergency department. We have a great relationship with our first responders, and we're very fortunate to have them as a resource, our lifeguard association our fire department to respond to these kinds of situations. And um, what my friend was telling me essentially was to know your surroundings, to have good situational awareness. And actually, when you're in the water, um, if you're concerned about a safety situation, so things that you're looking out for are one, you, for example, if you're filling yourself in a rip current, things that you're looking for rough current, a change in the water, foamy water, debris possibly getting pulled off of shore. And what you want to do is swim parallel to the land, um, stay calm, let yourself be pulled. And then when you feel yourself able to go ahead and swim parallel, and then back in in a current that looks like it's going towards the water, water rather than away. So when you see folks who have accidental near drownings, mm -hmm. Do you think it's is, – is it that panic situation? Maybe they start to hyperventilate. They start to aspirate, which is like swallow ocean water and then also cough and have that go down the wrong pipe, get into the lungs, et cetera. When you see someone in the emergency room who has come to you from having that experience, what are some of the things that immediately come to mind as – things you need to be careful about. I would think there's this delayed response that people have. Sometimes they call it dry drowning. Okay, now, I felt like I was safe as soon as I got out of the water, and now I could still drown. What is that about? What do I need to watch for if, if I'm experiencing that, if parents have young children, and they need to be mindful of that? What is that concept? Because it seems like it's the near drowning, everything's better, junior's good, and then what happens after, hours later? 
Right. So I'm actually a fairly new hire with Kaiser. I've been here for four months just so far on the island. And already I've seen children who've been brought in by their parents for concerns for what's been termed secondary drowning. So essentially in all drownings, the main factor is hypoxia. So either a wet or a dry drowning are the terms that you'll hear. A dry drowning comes when you have laryngospasm. And that's actually a minority of drownings where you can get laryngospasm and actually not inhale or aspirate the water versus a wet drowning where you actually get water into your lungs. Um, In the case of secondary drownings, it's actually a very contentious topic in emergency medicine right now, and it's getting a lot of coverage in the news. In secondary drownings, you may have, for example, a child that is submerged in water and is rescued. And the symptoms that you want to look out for is someone who has been submerged. And when they come out of the water, they're still having coughing, maybe some wheezing, um, you know, confusion, not acting themselves. And if there's any doubt for a secondary drowning, I would have uh, your child evaluated or the individual evaluated, um, either calling an advice line with your primary care physician or bringing into the emergency department so that uh, an, an experienced provider can evaluate them. Um, there's different testings that we may do, including, for example, an initial chest x-ray. Not every patient may require that, but there's usually an observation period of about four to six hours if that's a concern. So that if they start to have trouble breathing, lower their oxygen level, whatever it might be, they're surrounded by the very people who can early identify that and then treat it accordingly. Absolutely. Because although it's less common with second, although secondary drownings are less common, we do know that the risk for respiratory insufficiency can occur pretty rapidly, which is why we say if that's a concern, Either call your primary care physician's advice line to get some advice about what the next steps are or bring them in to get evaluated. And, you know, I'm curious because, and you've been here and you will hear more, there's different beaches on the island that are known to having different types of injuries. And one of the things that I always think about is what about neck injuries when you're swimming? And Dr. Greg, you know, Sandy Beach, that's the first thing I think about, Sandy Beach, that really, really... A steep area where it's a drop off and the waves crash right there. What are some of the things that if you don't necessarily have the near drowning event, but you have trauma while you're in the ocean, how does that change what you do when you come out? If you have neck pain or some other body discomfort, what sorts of things come to mind when we hear about not just the drowning aspect, but you're getting out of the water and the waves are crashing all over you? Lauren alluded to it how great our EMS and the, the lifeguards are. We're lucky. We work in the ED and those patients come packaged to us. It's like, I don't want to say a gift, but they're all bundled up. They're ready to go. I don't, I can't even begin to sort of understand the difficulties those lifeguards must have taking those patients out of the water. And again, you have to know your limitations. Know your limitations. Quote from the cl- classic Clint Eastwood movies. You need to know your limitations. And Sandy Beach, when you mention it, it's just so dangerous because it just breaks so quickly at at the shoreline. And a lot of the tourists, even local people, it's, it's a dangerous situation. And so, yes, the lifeguards, I don't know how they do such a great job. They stabilize and bring them out. EMS comes. They put them on the backboard. And then, like I said, they give them to us all bundled up. 
So at that point, their vitals have been taken. Correct. Hopefully they're stable. They're on a board. Are we worried about neck injuries? Are we worried about cervical fractures of the neck area, vertebral issues? Absolutely. What are the first things we look at? Absolutely. So when you do bring somebody out of the water, yeah, you have to stabilize their neck. You can't have them turn or twist. So yes, they'll keep their chin in line with the rest of their body. Uh, they'll put them on a backboard. If they don't have a backboard, they're just going to keep them in a straight line, uh, stomach up, neck straight, and then they'll just maintain that. And if they start choking or coughing, you have to roll them. Uh, and it takes usually two, sometimes three people to help do that. As a unit. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're listening right here. We're live in the studio, actually, with Dr. Greg Strongoski and Dr. Lauren Rodriguez and their emergency room physicians at Kaiser Permanente. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about head injuries. Does everybody need a CAT scan? What should we do if we're worried about hitting our head and having a concussion? We'll be right back after this quick break. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, Hawaii Pacific University, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, trying to stay safe this summer, trying not to go out there and injure myself. I know my limits, Dr. Greg. I've never gone to Sandy Beach, except for it's a really great place to like fly kites because you got some really good winds. So, you know, that that I would do. Uh, but I'm scared of that beach otherwise. And that's I'm not the strongest swimmer, I'll tell you. So we're talking right before the break about different ways that you can be careful, particularly should you be worried about drowning. And Dr. Lauren astutely mentioned not only when you get out of the water, but if you're still wheezing, coughing, feeling symptoms, and then you start to have trouble breathing, do get that checked out, either for yourself or your loved one, because you want to make sure that you're not putting yourself at risk or anyone else at risk for having a problem with getting worse in an unmonitored setting where there's limited help. If you're in an ER, if you're being observed by health professionals, that's a different situation. Now, right before the break, Dr. Greg, we talked about head injuries. And, you know, a lot of people, they might come from Sandy Beach or other beaches on the island, North Shore during the wintertime, variety of different places. And there may be some concerns about their neck and fractures and or hitting their head. Does everybody need a CAT scan? I mean, they're so easy to get these days. It only takes about 10 minutes. You don't even need contrast. Should everybody get a scan or do we have to be really careful about how we use this because of radiation exposure and all these other sorts of elements? Correct. That's a great, great question. No, not everybody uses a CAT scan. And what's what's one of the best studies that have ever helped an emergency physician is called PECARN, P-E-C-A-R-N. And that actually stands for Pediatric Emergency Care Apply Research Network. And you're thinking, what is that? That basically was a study in the late 90s by a guy named Cooperman out of UC Davis. And they studied over 40,000 kids, 40,000, just not at their institution, but all over the nation and international where it was validated. And they decided, do these head injuries, two years and less, two years old and less, and then two years and older, up to 18, when you do hit your head, do you need a CAT scan? So they came up with the guidelines on which people do need, which people don't, which patients. Uh, And they found that very few people do need CAT scans. So if you're less than two years old, Uh, and you don't have any loss of consciousness. And when we talk about loss of consciousness, I mean completely out, like the child is not moving. Uh, If you don't have a scalp hematoma on the front, uh, severe mechanisms of injury, and when we think of severe mechanism, we're talking in the less than two-year-old group, above three feet, 
above the two-year-old group, above five feet. And they're talking motor vehicle accidents, rollovers. That's the type of severe mechanism they used in this study. They found that less than 1% of patients need CAT scans of the head. And if the question is, let's say you bonk your head at noon, when will my child be okay? How long do you have to watch him? They came up with about a game plan of six hours. If you watch your child for about six hours and then there's no consequences, you're not going to have any consequences. I mean, it's not a 100%, but it's like 99.9%. So really what they were trying to figure out is why certain people may need to have advanced imaging and others don't. And in fact, if you're a parent and you keep a close watch on your child, about six hours would be the time frame. But what are you watching for? Are you watching for them to be sleepy, act funny, to to walk funny? What am I watching? What a parent could watch for is altered mental consciousness, an altered state. So you're the parent. Is your child acting funny? Yes or no. And if they're not acting normal, then yes, you need a professional to see them because we do other things too. We look in their ears to look for hemotympanums. We look for skull fracture, uh, base their skull fracture. There's different parts of the exam that that's why you bring your child in. It's just that when you bring your child in, we try not I don't want to say try not to, but we apply the PCAR criteria to determine does your child need a scan because the radiation is consequential. And you have a little brain, it's it's even going to be more at risk. Well, and that's one of the things that I think these days we appreciate a bit more. We never really used to. That the frequency and ubiquitous availability of CAT scans through emergency rooms made everybody get a scan for pretty much everything. And yet, if you look at a lifetime overall radiation risk, it may not be from just one scan. But if you wind up being a rough and tumble kid and your growing brain has 10 or 15 scans, that's actually a lot of radiation. And we don't, there's no ethical way to do a trial to see, well, what's that going to do? Because it's really not appropriate if we know there could be a problem to study how big of a problem you got. So we're never really going to know other than retrospective studies about whether or not this level of radiation could affect cognition, ability, intellect, growth. We don't know. Correct. And we, as parents, we want that quick, fast drive-through, give me the scan, I want reassurance. But sometimes that's not, again, that's not what's in the best interest of the little patient. So we have to go over those game plans on what to do, when to return, and we do that. That's what ER physicians all over the state do do. We discuss what to look for, and if those signs or symptoms develop in six, we even extend it to 12, 24 hours. If that happens, bring them back. We'll reassess. Not necessarily have to scan them, reassess. Well, I think the other thing that people have to realize is scans don't rule out problems. That concussions don't necessarily have anything on a scan. That, in fact, you could have a normal scan and have some serious brain concussion that if you just went by the scan, you might not monitor someone and there could be consequences to that. Absolutely. We don't, this topic is more about, yes, head injuries. However, there's a whole other discussion we could have about concussions, which is a little fun fact, too. It was surprising to me that the length of a concussion, first of all, the state of Hawaii actually tracks this, okay? They track all students. And the number one sport for concussions, football. But what's the highest percentage of concussions in any type of sport? It's actually in the martial arts in women. They have the highest percentage of concussions. Football has the highest number just because it's the sheer number of people that play it. If you have a concussion, the average duration of that concussion, 21 days. That's a big, that's a long time. That's huge. And if you're a student in school yes. and you've got finals or exams or some big major athletic, not athletic, but academic thing you have to do, 
that concussion can have effects on you. In addition to athletic, it can also have effects on you academically. And if you're doing your SATs or PSATs, whatever you're doing, this has serious implications. So quick tips for people to stay out of your home this summer. Dr. Lauren, you got any you got any tips? Yeah, so back to swimming and close to the water because when kids are out for the summer, no longer in school, a lot of that time is spent on the beach. The first is know your surroundings. When in doubt, don't go out. Uh, the next one is make sure if you can swim next to a lifeguard station, check with a lifeguard, see if there are any warnings out. And they may direct you to a safer place to be. Don't go intoxicated. Avoid excessive alcohol use. Be prepared for the conditions. And sunscreen. And sunscreen. I'm a guilty queen. I didn't wear sunscreen yesterday. I've got a little red. I should have known better, I'll tell you. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. And I do hope to have you on very soon to discuss some more ways that we can stay healthy, happy, and keep ourselves, you very nice people, out of the emergency room for the summer. Uh, Thank you very much to Dr. Greg Strangoski, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Lauren Rodriguez. She's an emergency room physician there. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, whypublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then.